Good afternoon. I'm Claire Sorrell, and I'm president of Friends of the Knox County Public Library, and I wanted to welcome you to Book Sandwiched In today. We're honored to welcome Tammy Kayusius. She will be talking about Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America by author Ari Berman. Kayusius was appointed to the Knox County Election Commission in the 2013-2015 term. In her legal work, she specializes in the areas of real estate and entertainment businesses and ventures. In addition, she works for the restoration of rights for those with criminal records and advising candidates on qualification issues. Thank you for your service, Tammy, and welcome to Book Sandwiched In. Tammy. Thank you. So thank you for being here. I want to thank the library and the friends of the library also. This is an awesome program. Using books as a vehicle for conversation is an incredible idea. So thanks for having it in general and asking me to speak on this topic. Sometimes I think if we just keep having a conversation, everything's going to be all right. Um, if we can debate honestly, everything's going to be all right. I got interested in this topic in a roundabout way. I can't say that I'm an expert on it. Um, I can say I have found a passion for it, which I didn't expect. Ari Berman is an investigative journalist. He's a fellow at the Nation Institute. He speaks a lot and does a lot of investigative work on ballot and democracy issues. Give Us a Ballot is the book. This book is unique because it really focuses on the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the history after that. We've got a lot out there on the civil rights movement. We have a lot on political strategy. We have a lot on voting even, but not really focusing on this particular statute and what's happened to date. And what's interesting about this topic is we don't know what's going to happen. It's currently changing. Uh, this election, and I think, are we 45 days away? Less than 50 days away from a major political election in the United States of America. And we have 14 states that have brand new voting restriction laws on the books. Tennessee's one of them. And some of the states are swing states. It matters. All of this really matters. It matters beyond the idea that the individual right to vote matters. It can change an election. And that's part of the issue. So I want to ask before we, we move forward, I want to get a show of hands. If we have eligible voters, do you think voting should be easy? Show of hands. Who thinks voting should be easy? All right. Another question. If we have a group of eligible voters, do you think there is a benefit to making voting more difficult? I'd like to say that's awesome. But I would also like to say that's not really clear. In other words, the law does not guarantee you the easy ability to vote. I want to ask another question. Do you believe that extreme partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional? Like today, do you believe that it is unconstitutional to create a district in which you can guarantee one party will be reelected for a decade? Show of hands, is it unconstitutional? Show of hands, is it not unconstitutional? 
Show of hands, should it be constitutional, unconstitutional? So this area is a difficult area, at least for me to talk about in a way in which I'm, I feel like I'm addressing all the nuances, in part because it's hyper-technical, but also because it's intersecting the area of race and politics. And that's an interesting place for us to be, because is hyper-partisanship unconstitutional? Is it unconstitutional to have hyper-partisan Laws. I, that's a question. Do you think it's unconstitutional to have hyperpartisan speech or laws? No, and you're right, it's not. Is it unconstitutional to pass laws which discriminate against a race when it comes to voting? Yes or no? Yes, yes it is. So can we then say it's constitutional right now, in the current state of the law, to pass laws in which you are guaranteeing, you are guaranteeing a supermajority for a decade, almost regardless of the, the constitution of your electorate, if you're basing it on politics. Right now, it seems to be that we can do that. There's some cases pending at the Supreme Court that may change this. But right now, you are not allowed to pass laws which unfairly discriminate against a race or a color but where do those things intersect if you have a voting, a group of folks who vote reliably for one party? And that is a difficult place to be because it is hard to talk about voting rights without talking about politics. It's, you know, I don't like hyperpartisanship, so in a way I don't even want to say Republican. I don't want to say Democrat. I don't want to say liberal. I don't want to say, I don't want to say any of it because I don't want to join in this rank of rancor. You know, I don't want to be part of the problem. And yet it's difficult to talk about the issue without talking about parties. And I'm going to ask you one other question. Pretend like, this is a fact pattern, 51% of the voters in a state cast their ballots for Republicans. 51% of the voters cast their ballots for Republicans. Yet Democrats win 61% of the seats to that state house. Okay. We got 51% of an electorate clearly casting ballots for one party, yet we have a supermajority of another party going to the state uh, house, the state Congress. How is that possible? Well, you know, it's possible through gerrymandering. Now, I said 51% of the voters cast a ballot for Republicans and 61% of Democrats went to the House. What if we've got 51% of voters cast a ballot for Democrats and 61% of Republicans went to the House? Is it also bad? What will we do to win? What is fair game? When is it okay to make laws to ensure your majority? And when is it not okay? We have to decide this. I say hyperpartisanship is not born from the electorate. It's actually born from gerrymandering. In other words, the way we currently allow politics to go down, the way we are handling voting, allows the legislators to not be responsive to the voter. What's going to happen to our democracy? This is very humbling to me because it can be lost. This republic can be lost. 
that's a hard thing for me to admit. We, we need to look at this not as a team or a fight even, but we need to look at it as, as a, we have to save what we have. Are you an American first? Are you a Democrat first? Are you a Republican first? Are you a liberal first? You know, what, what does it mean? And what's going too far? What are we willing to stand for? So that's my spiel. Um, Mr. Behrman, I think it's fair to say, had a definite point of view in the book. And one of the themes that comes up is that he clearly is pointing out the history of voting rights in this country as presenting progress and then backlash. So the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965 almost unleashed an incredible backlash against it. And every pushback, every backlash is more sophisticated. It's subtler. It creates a kind of argument, is it race or is it politics? Should it matter? And we have to sort of tangle with this. Um, and that, that unleashing, that backlash, is sort of seen if we go through a timeline. So I'm going to go through some dates trying to cover this major theme. All right. 1863, Emancipation Proclamation. 1865, the slavery was abolished via the um, ratification of a constitutional amendment. 1870, Congress ratified the 15th Amendment, which gave African-American men, okay, the right to vote. So just as an aside, we had a civil war, we had a constitutional amendment, but yet we had to secure the rights of citizenship as well. It wasn't easy. 1920, although Mr. Behrman doesn't really get into this, women received the right to vote via constitutional amendment. 1940, we start seeing the rise of what we call the Jim Crow laws, poll taxes, literacy tests, process used to subvert participation. We see it a lot in the South, um, and we also see numbers like only 3% of African Americans in the South are registered to vote. So this is in the 1940s, and we start seeing the rise of questionably legal means in order to make it harder for a particular class of people to vote. Poll taxes. This was not only against minorities. Uh, this also really affected poor people. So we see that rise, and then we start seeing the civil rights movement. And in 1964... The 24th Amendment was passed to the U.S. Constitution. It was ratified, and this abolished poll taxes. This helped a lot of Americans. Remember, and we're not going to go this far back. Mr. Behrman doesn't do it, and it's just too much history. But remember, voting was secured for only a certain class of men, not all men. And so we've had a history in this country of attaching wealth to voting, In 1965, we had Bloody Sunday, the march from Selma to Montgomery, and that's where this book starts. And we had more than 500 peaceful protesters who were violently, violently suppressed under color of law by by officials uh, when they chose to march to demand the right to vote. It's so simple for most of us. We go, you register, you vote. What's the big deal? Well, we've had people die for that right. I forget that. And this preparing for this, I'm reading about it, and I almost feel like a child. Like, good Lord, really? 
That happened in 1965. That march and the resistance that occurred was televised. In 1965, the Voting Rights Act was passed. Lyndon Johnson took it upon himself. He pushed it, and he passed the act. In a joint session of Congress, and before the vote was officially taken, he said, it is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. By the end of 1965, the act had not been in, in place for very long, 250,000 African Americans were registered to vote in the South. 250,000. I think this is a big takeaway for me. People want to vote. This idea that the electorate doesn't care is actually not so. People want to vote. Um, by the end of 1965, we had a vast increase in registration. In 1970, Nixon signs an extension of the Voting Rights Act with bipartisan, overwhelming bipartisan support. 1970. 1972, first African Americans were elected to Congress from the South for the first time since Reconstruction, because in Reconstruction there was a lot of advances in voting registration. That passed. 1975, Gerald Ford signs an extension, overwhelming bipartisan support. 1982, Ronald Reagan signs a 25-year extension, overwhelming bipartisan support. 2006, who was in the president in 2006? George Bush signed an extension. Section 5, one of the more uh, controversial parts of the Voting Rights Act, that section was extended for 25 years, signed by President Bush, overwhelming bipartisan support. 2008, we have the most diverse electorate in the United States history in 2008. We elect our first African-American president. This is almost a century and a half after the abolition of slavery, it's 43 years after the Voting Rights Act was, was enacted. 2011, we start seeing laws being passed, and voter suppression is on the rise. We have 27 measures passed or implemented in 19 states that make it harder to vote. 2012, Barack Obama was reelected as president. 2013, the United States Supreme Court struck down the heart of the Voting Rights Act in a case called Shelby v. Holder. And for good measure, in 2016, we have the first female presidential candidate from a major political party running for office, and this is almost a century after the right to vote was granted to women. I think we work in centuries. <laughs> and that may be so. I mean, it may be that those who think the Constitution matters, it may be we have to have a long view the extension applied to a certain part of the Voting Rights Act where Congress said some states have a racially motivated and discriminating history more than other states. Those states that met a certain formula, like a certain de determining factor, those states had to get preclearance from the Justice Department if they changed their laws. So that is part of what was extended. And in general, the law was put in place to, to solve a history of discrimination. So there was an idea that we, don't, we shouldn't have this problem forever, so we renew it. And that's not that uncommon on major pieces of legislation. It was that preclearance provision that was struck down by Shelby v. Holder. 
And even that's got a nuance. But anyway, it was essentially that's what happened. So the question comes up, that's a lot of effort, you know. We went through a lot of trouble. We passed a law. Everybody got together. We're extending it. Well, did it work? Was the Voting Rights Act successful? Did it improve fairness? Did it protect the ballot? Well, Mr. Behrman clearly says so, and he gives a lot of statistics. It's a very well-meticulously researched book. It's data-driven. It's date-heavy. But he says the number of black registered voters in the South increased from 31% to 73%. Uh, Black elected officials increased from fewer than 500 to 10,500. And there's a lot of other statistics. But also, through the Voting Rights Act, the voting age was lowered to the age of 18. Literacy tests were eliminated nationwide. Expanded protections for groups like Asian Americans, Native Americans, Hispanics. And it it really became the prime vehicle for expanding voter rights in the United States. And we don't even have to go through a lot of statistics to talk about what laws were prevented through the preclearance mechanisms, which are what was struck down by Shelby V. Holder. We could get in all of that, and this book's a great resource for that. But we don't even have to do that because Chief Justice Roberts, in the decision Shelby V. Holder in 2013, he basically said the United States has changed. It's worked. We elected the first African-American president. We don't need it anymore. That's how well it worked. This was the majority opinion, paraphrasing, in Shelby v. Holder. He thought it worked. A majority of the Supreme Court thought it worked. In some very strong dissents, it was pointed out that you don't get rid of, you know, you don't get rid of a treatment when you admit that the illness is still around. You're just saying the illness is there, but it isn't as bad as it was. And remember, again, in 2006, Congress did authorize the extension of the Voting Rights Act, and then in 2013 the Supreme Court said, "Uh uh-uh. So let's go a little closer to home to see if the Voting Rights Act helped. Let's look at our neighbor, North Carolina. So North Carolina was subject to these preclearance requirements, not the whole state, but a lot of major counties. So prior to Shelby v. Holder, prior to 2013, if they wanted to change their voting laws, they had to submit their plan, deal with some folks who looked at it and show it wasn't racially motivated, there wasn't an intent. And so this was happening the whole time since the act was um, passed. Between 2000 and 2012, African-American turnout increased 65 percent. So that's over 12 years. That's about a decade. Between 2008 and 2012, and hear me now, because this is actually really important, African-Americans registered and voted at a higher rate than white Americans for the first time in North Carolina history, 2008 to 2012. So it worked. Let's assume it worked. We had the most diverse electorate in 2008, and that includes youth, by the way. This is a largely underspoken issue, is the youth vote and how a lot of these laws that are affecting minorities are also affecting youth. And that's important when you start looking at the various elections and election strategy. All right, so Shelby v. Holder comes down in 2013, the day after the Supreme Court decision. The Republican chairman in the North Carolina Senate Rules Committee said, I think we're going to have an omnibus bill on voting come out. 
So North Carolina then passed one of the largest voting bills. I mean, what a difference a day makes, huh? And they passed it really fast. And the omnibus bill included stricter voter ID laws. It included changes in early voting times. It included changes in registration, changes in same-day registration. Now, for those of us in here are kind of like big deal, you know, what's a big deal? Get a photo ID. I drive. The one I often hear is, I have to have a photo ID to buy Sudafed. What's a big deal? One of the reasons it was a big deal is because we know that the North Carolina legislature, when they were writing this law, they asked for racial voting data. They said, let's see what the habits of voters in our state are based on race. They then appeared to write a piece of legislation which addressed each characteristic where African-American voters had a slightly different habit. For example, the law actually reduced early voting from uh, 17 days to 10 days. It comes out that African-American voters predominantly vote in the first seven days of early voting. That's why it went from 17 days to 10 days. Um, And there's other things. Uh, You know, they essentially saw that there was a thing called same-day voting where you would register the day you go to the polls, and that was struck down. And it's kind of like using process, you know, these particular process mechanisms. Uh, They chose what kind of IDs you can use when they saw the kinds of photo IDs that particular voters didn't have, so they said these are acceptable photo IDs that you can use in order to vote. You know, it didn't include those voter IDs that they knew a particular group of voters usually had. Now, I'm assuming it sounds obvious that this law was racially motivated. However, if that's the case, how did it get passed? What do you think the number one rationale was for why this law was passed? You know, why did North Carolina legislators say this was necessary? Reduce voter fraud. Because who wants, I mean, I don't want voter fraud going on in my, in my elections. I want confidence in my elections. I'm sure all of us do. So they did give that as a rationale for passing this law. Well, it was challenged. This law was challenged. Now, I want to be a little bit clear here. This law was challenged even though the Voting Rights Act was gutted in 2013. So it's not that we have no avenues to challenge these laws, all right? They didn't um, say the entire Voting Rights Act was unconstitutional. I think that's important to remember. And the district court said it's fine. You know, it was a very detailed decision. They said it's fine. There's no racial animus. And then the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals reviewed it. And they had a different opinion. And this is where you see this intersection. Is it race or is it politics? Because on its face, it's racially neutral. And it does ensure their majority. I mean, it gives a political party a kind of certainty that they're they're increasing their likelihood that they're going to win. So the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, what they say is that the legislator asked for data and took that data and with surgical precision drafted a law that disenfranchised a whole group of voters. And 
They say that the district court ignores the fact that in the state of North Carolina, race and politics is inextricably connected. They also say that in holding that the legislature did not enact the challenge provisions with discriminatory intent, the court seems to have missed a forest and carefully surveying the trees. They made the point, our conclusion does not mean, and we don't suggest, that any member of the General Assembly harbored racial hatred or animosity toward any minority group. But the totality of the circumstances, North Carolina's history of voting discrimination, the surge in African-American voting, the legislature's knowledge that African-Americans' voting translated into support for one party, and the swift elimination of the tools African-Americans had used to vote and imposition of a new barrier at the first opportunity to do so, cumulatively and unmistakably reveal that the North Carolina General Assembly used this law to entrench itself. It did so by targeting voters who, based on race, were unlikely to vote for the majority party. Even if done for partisan ends, that constituted racial discrimination. The governor of North Carolina, I think, called them Democrat judges, Democratic-appointed judges, which, which is not accurate. But they said, we're going to fight it. We're going to the Supreme Court. And because of some issues related to process as it relates to voting, the Supreme Court didn't take it up by a split decision, four to four. Why is it four to four? Don't we have nine? Where's the ninth? And so here we are. We have a president that has put up a Supreme Court judge for confirmation, and it's going nowhere. So we're seeing the results, really, of this kind of hyperpartisanship. And the question in my mind is, what came first, the hyperpartisanship or making the laws so that they don't have to respond to voters. And this is sort of a question that I come up against all the time. A democracy works when legislatures, candidates, politicians, respond to voters. So the voters are choosing who governs. It's almost as if we have those who govern choosing who votes. And... I contend it's a problem. Yes. My mother was from Wyoming when she married an Alabama and wasn't too interested in local politics. But she had to pay a $2 a year poll tax, and my dad didn't earn enough money, and so she never paid the poll tax. Well, it mounted up year by year until it was, you know, $20, $30, or $40. When I went to register to vote in 1960, I had to take a test. And um, I only remember what one question was. There were two others. The one question I remember was so subjective that anybody could have been said to fail. It was, name the duties and responsibilities of a citizen of the United States. Well, I quit reading this book because I kept getting angrier. Yeah, I had that. It was hard for me as well. Plus, plus the library time was running out. But this chapter towards the end, Old Poison, New Bottles, really got to me. 
this book had that effect on me. I'm reading it, and then I started doing a little bit of research uh, just to prepare for this. And there's a part of me that's just, this, this can't be right. Has it always been this way? And I guess for some people it has. Thank you for the comment. Did the omnibus bill in North Carolina outlaw the voting on Sundays, which African-American churches used to participate and organize, and related to that, do you see any possibility at all that we will ever have election days be holidays so that people with jobs can get there without in conflict with work? Uh, the answer to that is I don't know on both counts. I don't know specifically whether it outlawed that North Carolina omnibus law, which is currently not good law. So it's not in effect It is not in effect now. Now, there are some reports that certain North Carolina election officials are still using those provisions, like they're still telling people about these voter IDs, but it is technically not in effect right now because of the procedural posture of that case, a Fourth Circuit decision, the fact that the Supreme Court could not take it up. They did change a lot of process, and it may be one of those Sunday days. And also, it's clear in minority communities in general that they use a kind of community registration more often, and that's where you get things like a tax on those kinds of registering of voters. That was also attacked. So I don't know the answer, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, on the second one, if will we have a national holiday, I don't know. There is some hope in that, including this state, a lot of states have passed easier registration laws. And so July of 2017, Tennessee is supposed to have essentially what we call online registration. Registration's a big deal. That process can be used to stymie participation. And so that will help. So we'll see. Yes, sir. Yes. One of the things that I've heard is that actually minority parties also benefit in the gerrymandering because the gerrymandering process will create, let's say, Republican-dominated legislature will carve out legislative seats that are always going to be Democrat. Okay, I'm a Democrat, so fine. I'm in one of those seats. It makes me safe. I I think, if I may sort of state what I think you're getting at, is that this is not an all-or-nothing practice. And I think that's so, both historically and also currently. And, you know, a a lot of the criticism that originally came sort of from conservative camps about Section 5 under the Voting Rights Act was that the Section 4 formula, creating majority-minority districts and all these things, had its own kind of weird results. And I think that's so. I think Mm -hmm. it was an imperfect formula, and I think parties benefit. Mm -hmm. And, you know... We have had stable elections now for, okay, we've had stable elections. In 1997, I lived in Indonesia, and the dictator, who I think they had regular elections, and this, I think this gentleman tended to get elected by 98% of the vote, but um, he fell, Suharto. So there were real elections for the first time in decades, and it was really strange. They had all this process. The Green Party, the Yellow Party, the Red Party, and every day a certain party had the right to protest. And they would just hire people to sit there, and and you couldn't get through traffic. And it had a mob feeling to it, and people would knock, you know, your car would be stuck, and people would knock on your window, and 
see that you're drinking water and say, like, then, you know, you'd give them the water. I mean, you, you know, the threat of violence was enough to do, do what was asked. And I remember thinking how proud I was that we don't have that kind of thing. I think that was arrogance in retrospect. I, I don't know what's going to happen. One of the reasons we've had such a stable democracy, I believe, has to do with the two-party system. But yet this is causing problems now, so we'll have to see. So, yes, it's helping the parties in general. And what's going to happen to us as voters if we start pulling away from party identity? Where is that voice going to land? Yes, I'm going to answer John's question about Sunday voting because I went to the uh, Election Commission meeting last week. That was the meeting at which they set the early voting hours and days and times and the polling places. And I did speak up and ask about the possibility of Sundays being part of the early voting schedule because obviously that's a very popular day in a lot of states. And um, I was told by the chairman, and, and I'm, I'm going to think he's totally sincere about this, but I was told by the chairman that he was told by the poll workers that they never wanted to work on a Sunday, and he promised them that he would never recommend that polling places be open on a Sunday. So, But, you know, as he said, that doesn't mean some other member of the commission can't recommend that. But I think that that is something that the state of Tennessee should consider, or at least I guess it's set county by county. Uh, I think if we had enough people that asked for it and that went to election commission meetings and said that it was important that it might be something we could get through. It's obviously not going to happen this election, but it could happen in the future. Thank you very much for that comment. And you raise a really great point because, you know, what do we do about it? Well, you know, you can little things. You can just be standing somewhere, and if somebody says something about voting, you can, if you think this is so, say, well, voting should be easy for, for an eligible voter. But also participating in a Knox County Election Commission meeting, coming and seeing it, or making your position known on different issues, it does matter. As a former election commissioner, you know, politicians and administrators still do respond to people coming out and saying, this isn't right, or I don't like this, or what about this? So it definitely does matter. And the changes in early voting are statewide. In this state, uh, one of the things I mentioned is Tennessee has changes in their photo ID laws. This election, different than 2012, okay? So one of those changes is that it has to be a state or federal governmentally issued ID. So, by the way, a library card does not count. That's specifically excluded. Uh, let me get this question here. Yeah. Uh, you can use your gun permit to vote. You can. Okay. That is so. Uh, and I would like to know what process you have to go through if you do not have this ID, if you do not have a, a driver's license. What are the restrictions for you? You can ask for a provisional ballot. You should ask as a voter, and somebody's going to have to start helping train voters about right. this, by the way, because I don't know that election commissions are really doing it, although statutorily the registration drives is a part of their mandate and a part of their directive. But you should ask for a provisional ballot. That's going to be a paper ballot. You have to vote on it. And then you have a certain amount of time, and I think it's two days after the election, but I haven't checked that recently, to go in and bring the proof that you need which is to count. I don't think that, yeah, you can have to bring, you can, it could be a birth certificate. 
They say that they've made the photo ID easier, and I don't know because I haven't done it, and I haven't had somebody that's had to do it. So I don't know how difficult it is. But if you get any pushback at the actual poll, whether it's early voting or not, you should always ask for a provisional ballot. And one of the problems with this is that we say, I remember when I was on the election commission, I asked, because a new photo ID law I think went into effect, Gloria, you may know, 2011 maybe. And I asked if anybody had problems with it. And I've heard through the grapevine we only had seven complaints. Well, I myself went with my father to vote at our polling location, and I saw an elderly woman be turned away because she was there about 30 minutes before the poll closed because she didn't have a photo ID. She's probably been, you know, she's been voting without one for who knows how long. She didn't complain. You know, she didn't register a complaint. Uh, she just turned away. And so we don't know the effect of these photo ID laws. There has been some uh, studies done, and they think in Tennessee and one other state it, it reduced the vote by about 3%. And I think this, I think he says somewhere in here, he says a post-election survey, and this is in Ohio, by the pollsters, and I think this was a 2004 election, I'm not sure, uh, by these particular pollsters, estimated that 3% of Ohio voters left their polling places without voting because of long lines. Now, lines get long because you don't have enough polling machines. They could also get long because you're having to check all this stuff, (laughs) you know, check an ID. And um, the number, that number, 3%, that, that estimated to have left is 174,000, and that's larger than Bush's 118,000 margin of victory in Ohio. So these things, it's like they're accreting at the edges and they're shaving off percentages where, where they can. So I'm not being directly responsive to your question, but the point... Poor people, because to get a birth certificate in Tennessee, it's $65. It impacts poor people. It and they have. Poor people, they right. did change the law that if you can sign an affidavit that you're indigent, that you don't have to get it. And can you do that when you do a provisional ballot, for example? I don't know. That's a good question. The other thing that to- the election commission told me I could get requested absentee ballot. And you, I'm, gl- I'm glad you raise that because an absentee ballot process in this state is not subject to a photo ID requirement. Yeah. So and maybe that's the way around. And you know that's that is a way around it. Right. So photo IDs, which are allegedly being enacted in order to prevent voter fraud, doesn't prevent an area which is riper for fraud. So the question to me. A reasonable question is, is it reducing turnout? I think the answer is starting to be yes. Is it preventing fraud? And we have to ask that question. Is it preventing fraud? And there's a lot of studies now, people, and this gentleman gives you a lot of data about this, that no, it's not. And there there isn't much fraud to begin with. It appears that there's not. I think I read somewhere that in the case of, like, billions of... um, Yeah. That's good. 31 credible incidences of fraud out of 1 billion ballots cast. Yeah. Now, what is fraud? If I don't file a required change of address notification and I go vote in my prior polling place, is that fraud? I mean, some, some people oh. would say, yes, you're, you're filing mm-hmm. that under penalty of perjury. I feel like what we care about is rigging an election or people voting multiple times or dead people voting. Right. Um, 
I don't know that we're going to go back to no photo IDs. I want to raise some changes in this election in Arizona that relate to elderly people. They changed the law so that only a family member or someone who lives in the house with that elderly person or a caregiver can carry an absentee ballot to the registration office. I mean, at some point it's kind of, it's almost mean-spirited. And um, and I and I wonder sometimes, am I just naive? It, I have some cases that we're not going to have time to talk about with uh, these two cases of restoring uh, gentlemen who have convictions. And one had a conviction in 1958 in another state. And it's over 50 years ago. He voted in Ohio. He has a certificate that he's been carrying around since 1958 that actually grants him from the Ohio Pardon and Parole Commission. Uh, let's see, it says, under the authority of this section, the Pardon and Parole Commission hereby restores you to the rights and privileges forfeited by your conviction, namely the right to vote. He has this. He voted in Ohio for years. He moved to Tennessee in the late 90s. He voted in Tennessee, okay? In 2013, he did what a lot of us, frankly, probably don't do. He properly went down to change his address to reflect on the registration of the voter rolls that he moved. Well, the box describing felony convictions, the language had changed from the original box that you signed, yes, I'm a felon. And they saw it and they said, ah, denied. And he received a denial of the right to vote in 2013, despite the fact he'd been voting, okay? He went down to the election commission office and he said, I I, I can vote. I've been voting. I've got this restoration from Ohio. They looked at it and said, well, we got to fax it to Nashville, the Tennessee Election Commission in Nashville. And um, he got uh, somebody, a correction official's office from the Department of Correction, helped fill out a certificate of restoration. They found the conviction. They found the reason for the conviction. They sent it to Nashville. Somebody in the Election Commission sent this, and they still said the man can't vote. Not good enough. It's not thorough enough. And, you know, nobody knows what to do. The laws as it relates to restoring rights for ex-cons in this state, that is one place where the state of Tennessee is really not only complicated and confusing, it's also regressive. What's he supposed to do? Somehow or another, I get involved, and I figure out, well, we can, we got to go to a judge and get a court order. This year, this gentleman is 88 years old, okay? He's voted in Tennessee before, and he got his rights revoked in 2013. I submit to you that this is sufficient for these administrative officers, including the Knox County Election Commission, and they do a good job, okay, but that this is enough to say, okay, you can vote, what kind of hyper-technical, process-driven country are we living in when, when you can't have discretion in how to do these things? Well, everybody said no. So we run down to the courthouse, and there's a process. You notice a DA and all this, and the, the judge, she signs an order to restore his rights. This was Monday. Okay, when is a deadline to get registered to vote for the November 8 election? It's October 11. So we go down, because he still has to submit a voter registration application, 
and I say I'd like to fill out a voter registration application. Oh, and we have this order. And they took the application, but they usually won't. They say, guess what? We have to fax it to Nashville. They take that court order and fax it to Nashville. So I have a gentleman who since 2013 has gone to multiple different people, every one of whom, if you ask, and I'm, I'm pretty certain of this, should he have the right to vote, almost everyone would say yes. I mean, none of us are out there, you know, jumping for joy. We all kind of think this is wrong, yet it's like pushing, you know, pushing rope in some kind of a way. So I talked to Nashville today, and I said, we fax the order. Why are y'all even looking at it? It's a court order. This is a judge saying his rights of citizenship are restored. And they say we have to run him through a child support database. And I said he's 88. You know, he's 88 years old. His daughter's 60-something. And then there's a lot of minutia. And I said, and the conviction occurred before 1981 and all this kind of stuff. And they said, well, none of that's in the order. I said, well, I got the order. I mean, so they asked that I faxed the petition. And, uh, and here's the issue. Here's the issue. If this gentleman now doesn't get a letter from Nashville saying that, his, that he can fill out an application, then he can miss a deadline. Now, they won't do that. They won't do that because Nashville's alerted to the issue. I've talked to them. They're going to go through it. And I, I have confidence he will be able to vote in this next election. But what about all of them that are getting faxed up there that don't have somebody calling going, yeah, but the statute says that only applies if it's a, okay, what are we, you know, that's happening. And in those cases, they're not even getting a rejection of the application, which is what gives you the right to appeal. All right, so this is a whole other thing. I just... I just think when we have a system that's so hyper-technical and process-driven that it's a problem. And on that absolutely positive note. <laughs> Thank you all for coming out. Thank you, Tammy. You Thank you very much. You did just a much. great job. Just a great job. Thank you um, very much. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.